This is Eric Meyer from the band Dark Fucking Angel, and you are listening to Misery Point Radio. Thanks for joining me again on Misery Point Radio. Always an honor, of course, to have you as companions on this endless journey through the wasteland of internet radio. It warms what's left of my hollow soul to know that every day, as a darkness descends to leave those scars that time does not heal, I've always got you, my little angels of darkness, to guide me through. And today, I can officially say, without question, we have arrived. See what I did there? Of course you do. Today's guest is Eric Meyer from Legendary Thrasher's Dark Angel, who are regarded as pioneers that helped to develop a musical style combining raw aggression, blistering speed, sheer brutality, technical ability, and epic storytelling. And Eric has been there through it all, through the evolution of not only Dark Angel, but also the metal scene as a whole. In fact, he's the only member of Dark Angel to have played on all of the band's studio albums. And with over 35 years of musical history, we had no shortage of things to talk about. In fact, this is the longest conversation I've ever had on this show. So I decided to cut it into two episodes. In the first episode, we talk about Eric's affinity for healthier living in the outdoors, his epic experiences with kayak-based shark fishing, his love of guitars, his upcoming SP custom build with Scott Pavarnik, and his entry point into Dark Angel. In the second episode, we dive deeper into Dark Angel territory, the evolution of their songwriting style, the recordings in each of the albums, the confirmation of my perceived connection between Leaf Scars and Time Does Not Heal, and of course, what everyone wants to know, the status of the long-awaited new album and some listener questions. But for now, prepare yourselves for two epic hours of awesomeness, and welcome to Misery Point Radio from legendary OG Metal Overlord's Dark Fucking Angel, Eric Fucking Meyer. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show, brother. How the hell are you? I'm great, Mike. How are you? Oh, you know. Great to be here, man. Great to be here. Awesome. Yeah. It's uh, it's a nice, amazingly shitty day over here in the Seattle area. What else is new? Uh, I guess. <laughs> man, I guess you guys are used to that over there, all that rain, right? We're used to it. We're used to it. Uh, I was in San Diego a few months ago, and even when it was crappy over here, it was like 90 degrees, so I think maybe California is the way to go for sure. <laughs> Right. I think we're we're like in the 70s over here right now. So it's it's doing pretty nice. Awesome. Well, what's going on pretty over nice. there right now? What are you doing during the during the quote unquote quarantine to kind of keep yourself busy and occupied? You know, um, honestly, I haven't quarantined out all that bad personally. Yeah. I mean, um, I enjoy cycling on a daily basis, you know, keep myself uh, fit. And um, I never stopped doing that. I had been hitting the gym three times a week. That was kind of a fairly new thing that I got back into. But um, so I actually stopped doing that because, you know, the gym's closed. So I got into bike riding again every day and uh, I go fishing once a week. So um, I still been doing all of that since the quarantine. Oh, right on. So my girls started working at home. So that's definitely a different thing. But uh, yeah. 
Yeah. You're a, so, you're a pretty outdoorsy kind of a healthy fitnessy kind of a guy. In addition to doing biking, um, try to, yeah. yeah, let's, let's talk about that crazy shark fishing. <laughs> yeah. Man. Well, you know, I kind of grew up boating with my parents and um, so I was kind of always, I was kind of raised doing saltwater fishing. You know, I got minimal lake fishing, minimal freshwater fishing experience at all, but it was always a saltwater thing since I was a kid. And, um, you know, my parents had a couple of boats. And so we would go fishing off, uh, you know, in the Southern California area. So I kind of grew up doing that. And then, uh, you know, my parents passed away and so boats were gone and I really hadn't had that much more of that going on. And then I kind of got in, you know, I'd done a few uh, trips to Mexico doing that kind of stuff and um, did a little bit of surf fishing. I really didn't have any background doing that, but kind of had some fun doing that locally because I got, I live in Huntington beach. So it's surf fishing is kind of a thing, but you know, surf fishing is kind of limited, but what kind of intrigued me about it is I've always been like a shark fan. I always loved sharks and um, loved to catch sharks when I could. And um, my parents were never into the shark fishing. And, and it was kind of strange. Like if you go out on, I've done different charters on different locales, like in, you know, Mexico and Hawaii, different things like that. Always try to do it when I'm in those locations. And, and it's kind of funny because a lot of charter guys are not into sharks at all either. They like, if you catch a shark, it's like, oh, fuck, I'm glad it didn't hook up, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so it's kind of weird, you know, because there's not really a lot of shark fanatic charter guys. But um, so I was doing the stuff off the beach and all that. And then I kind of heard about this land based shark fishing kind of a thing. And that was really goes on in like Texas. They do a lot of it, like off Corpus Christi and places like that. And um so I was really intrigued by that, but we don't have that same kind of sharks here off the beach here. And, um, but what those guys have to do is when they, to get your bait far out, they actually have a kayak and they jump in a kayak to take their bait way out there past the breakers and drop it in like that. And, um, so I was just kind of hearing about that and I kind of was thinking to myself, well, fuck, if I'm going to get into that, I'm going to need to get on board with a kayak, which was something I'd never done. I had no idea about it. And, um, so I did a minor little bit of research on kayaks and, uh, you know, I went to a kayak shop and I saw these fancy kayaks and I got sticker shock and I walked <laughs> and I totally walked away because they were these Hobie kayaks and they were thousands of dollars. Oh, yeah. And um, so I was just like, well, fuck, that's ridiculous for a kayak, you know? So I went to my sports chalet and I got my very first kayak, which was like a, a paddle kayak. And um, it took it out a few times. I like did launches through surf and stuff like that. And I got beat up bad doing that a few times. And I didn't really catch much fish doing it. And um, I was pretty frustrated with it. It wasn't even as easy as I thought it was going to be. And, um, and then I think I did a little bit more like research on it and met some different people. And, uh, somebody had told me about catching thresher sharks off of, uh, in the Newport beach area. And, um, which is right nearby for me. 
And um, so as soon as I kind of learned about that, did a little bit of research, and then I was took that kayak out. And and even before that, it was I got backtrack a little bit, but um, we have occasionally what they call a El Nino, and that's a weather condition. It's a weather where, current, yeah. Yes, brings in really warm water to our area, and it's it's very unusual. It only happens, you know. Uh, geez, two or three times that I can recall in my lifetime around here. Um, but when that happens, you get some of these, you get some of these, what they would call like exotic warm water fish coming down in our area. Like you would get Dorados and dolphin, the Mahi Mahi, those beautiful fish. Yeah. But what you would also get, you get hammerheads down here. And uh, that's typically like a Florida kind of fish, Florida, real warm water, 80 degree plus waters where those sharks basically live. But because we got El Nino's you know, situation happen, uh, you kind of hear about the stuff on the news because news is kind of shark crazy. And it's like as soon as somebody sees a shark on the news, it's – Yeah, they freak the fuck out. <laughs> it's on 5 o'clock news that there was a hammerhead spot. And what happened, I had my kayak and, and I saw uh, – there was like a guy off Malibu – and supposedly he was in his kayak and supposedly he got attacked by a hammerhead shark. And I was just like, oh, my God, what the fuck? You know, I, a hammer, I love hammerhead sharks. They're, you know, they got the big head. If you're familiar with them, oh, I mean, yeah. everybody kind of knows. But kind of knows what a hammerhead looks like. But I've always thought they were the most amazing looking sharks. And uh, so anyway, so this guy caught one off Malibu and it turns out he had caught it and he had his foot in the water and he brought it close and I guess it bit his foot. And so that truth kind of came out a little bit later. But anyway, all of a sudden uh, on the news, there was, somebody spotted a hammerhead off the pier, off Huntington Pier. And they were, so all of a sudden I found out that they were local to me. So First thing I did was like, holy fuck, I got to go. I'm going to take my <laughs> kayak out. And I know it basically how to catch a shark. I had the gear already from my parents' boat. So I had like all this old gear. And it's just basically, you know, a wire leader, a wire leader and a big mackerel. You know, that's basically how you're going to catch something like that. And so I I went off my local beach right here and I figured, well, I'm going to fucking go out about the distance of the pier Huntington Pier, which is a little ways out, you know, kind of out beyond the surf line. And I even did some, had some chum in a bag and I was, it was funny shit, but it, like, <laughs> I swear I was out for like 10 minutes and I had just put my bait out and I swear I didn't even have a chance to get situated. Really. It was like, cause it's kind of a creepy feeling when you're doing that. It's kind of scary, you know, cause it's, you know, you're in a kayak and it's a little thing and, I swear this hammerhead fin came by like 10 feet in front of me and just went, it like went right. And it was, and then my little float went on my rod. So I swear the shark must've been right there. So my first trip out, I caught like an eight foot hammerhead and I was on him for like two hours. And that was my like introduction to big fish on a kayak. And, when you catch a big fish, it tows you. Right. And uh, it towed me like from where I was, it was like Golden West Street in Huntington Beach to all the way south side of the pier, which is 
you know, it was probably like a mile or something like that. And so that was like my introduction and it was just so fucking cool. And I had it all on GoPro and I did videos and like, if I'd say you've seen that one video that I did, like, um, I made a video of it. Cause that's when you're going to catch and release something. It's like, if you don't get a picture of it or video of it, I mean, fuck, it never happened. Or right. Something, right. So, um, I got some underwater footage of the footage of this hammerhead and it was, it was my introduction to doing that, and um, it was bitching. I mean, a hammerhead shark on a kayak, and he was eight. He was pretty long and skinny, and and so then after that one happened, I saw that some other guys had caught caught him off Dana Point, which is a which is like down south from me. It's about forty five minute drive, so you know twenty miles or something southward, and. Um, so that's actually where my parents had their boat. So I was really familiar with that harbor. And uh, I went out fishing off there. And like that, I think, was probably one of the first times that I went out kayak fishing in that area because it's kind of a bit of a farther paddle. And I remember the water was really rough, you know, and I just thought, wow, I'm not even going to stay doing this this long because the water was rough. And um I was out for about 45 minutes or something and I, and I caught one over there. So that was, and he just, and the great thing when you catch something like that and things are kind of sketchy and the shark tows you, they don't tow you, they don't tow you towards shore. They tow you you out to sea. So that's exactly what happened. And uh, getting just towed out to sea and you're by yourself and, I mean, you could go fishing with friends, but I always just go by myself. And it's better to go during the week because boat traffic is bad news for a kayak. Right. Run, you get run over and you get killed. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's the worst thing you really have to worry about kayaking is getting run over by a boat. Yeah. And um, so anyway, so I caught my second hammerhead. And that, I think, I don't know, it was, it was probably in that same El Nino season. So... That was really my introduction to the big fish. And I haven't, unfortunately, there hasn't been an El Nino since. Um, you know, so this was five, six years ago, I think. Five years ago, something like that. I don't know. I'd have to check. Something something like that. And then, uh, so then I got into catching the thresher sharks, which are kind of a local species. And they're really rad because they jump out of the water. And they're actually really good to eat. I think I've landed like three of them. Uh, but I've released a whole bunch more yeah. and there, cause I mean, you catch a fish, it's 150 pounds and it's, <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a lot of work on the back end, you know, the, the back end of your day to try to drag this thing out and carry it. And it's just the couple that I did land, I had my friend with me and, uh, he's a young guy, you know, guys in their twenties, they got all, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they got all the energy. Yeah. You know, so I haven't undertaken trying to get a big dog like that by myself. And um, actually, it's like I always wanted to be the guy that would catch the biggest one. And a thresher shark is something that will kind of it'll run itself out. If you catch like a smaller one and you have it on the line for too long, he'll actually die. Oh, shit. Yeah. So you kind of if you're going to let him go, you kind of have to be a. You got to be on it and not fuck around for too long or else the fish will die. Yeah. He'll die. He'll, if you get a, a smaller one, I mean, he'll be dead in a half hour or an hour or something like that. So you see these guys that bring them in, the fish kind of dies. But 
when you get these really big ones, like I've been lucky enough to catch a few times, they don't poop out like that and they just keep on going. And like my first big one that I caught on my paddle kayak, I was on it for, for uh, five hours. Damn dude. Yeah. So it was the, it was the marathon of five hours on this fish. And he took, that was on my paddle kayak, which I've since upgraded to do a, a, I got one of the fancy kayaks. I got a Hobie kayak with the pedals and that's just a total game changer. Yeah. Do the, uh, do the animal rights people ever give you shit about this? I keep it pretty on the down low. Yeah. Honestly. Um, because a lot of people do, I, you know, I don't even really talk about it on the Facebook page on my (laughs) Facebook page because I only just did this last one, but you get a lot of, I mean, obviously the animal rights people and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I mean, sport fishing is. Yeah. In general, people either they're okay with it or they're not, and you're not going to please everybody. But it sounds like your goal is to do your best to not harm the animal unless you're planning on eating them or something. Yeah, I do my best to release them. And that's exactly it. So, yeah, that's the sharking story. I caught the last one I caught was May 5th. So I've struck out a few times since then, but um, that's the breaks on fishing, you know. Well, there you go. You guys all thought you were going to tune in to hear me and Eric talk about Dark Angel, but no, we're just going to talk about <laughs> health and wellness and fitness and fucking shark fishing this whole time. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, that's awesome. I mean, it's cool to kind of get a little bit of insight into who you are personally, so uh, I think people I definitely appreciate that. Um, I also, before we get rocking and rolling on, on the meat and potatoes of the content here, I want to give a quick shout out to our, our mutual uh, buddy here, Mr. Scott Pavarnik from SP Custom Guitars and False yeah. Profit, who's actually a, apparently now my honorary booking agent. <laughs> so, uh, so, so thanks, SP. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, you know getting into my piece with him because it was it, it's kind of funny how I came into uh, learning about his stuff. You know, I always keep my eyes open for different guitars and stuff like that, sure. and I had. I had seen his guitars here and there, like with Possessed, and and I know um, Rick Ross had one, and, yep. and just a few people. And I looked them up, and I saw it, and I was like, fuck, wow, he makes rad guitar. And um, so I was kind of excited about it, because I was kind of looking forward to getting like my next piece that I had, my last, my uh, most recent one that I got was like this Jackson Custom Shop piece that I found on eBay. And then like before that, it was like fucking 10 years. Yeah. Before, since I got one. And, um, but anyway, I was do we were doing a show, Dark Angel was, and I had Ron was with me. We were driving somewhere. Ron like stays at my house when we do gigs or something. And, uh, we were going somewhere and, and, uh, he's friends with Rick Roz. Yeah. And so Rick's name came up and he's like, dude, let's, Rick just called me. Let's call Rick right now. So I was like, fuck, it's amazing because he does, he works with Scott, so I hadn't talked with Rick Roz like since we did the the death gigs uh, way back way back when, you know, because he didn't he quit the band and stuff or sure. he was out anyway, so he wasn't playing with them anymore. And um, so yeah, so I talked with Rick, and Rick was all excited about the guitars that he had from Scott, and so the Threshers, uh, coincidentally, they're yes, called Threshers, yeah. I know. <laughs> no, that's so fucking weird. So, uh, so I chatted with Rick, and you know, Rick has a bunch of pieces in the queue, so to speak, already. 
It's a long queue, by the way. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah. You know, the one man uh, build. I think I'm in the queue already. Yeah. Are you going to, are you going to get a V built? Yes. Well, how did I know? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not like you're known for those or anything. I know. Right. I'm, I, I don't want to give it away, but um, it's, it's funny. I've kind of had it the idea of what I want worked up in my head for a few years, mm -hmm. uh, really of what I want. And, um, it's, it's kind of something that I just, I've never seen, um, kind of just color wise, you know, the finish wise and stuff. And, um, I I'm a fan of the King V body style with the pointy and the way the King V Jackson King V is sculpted. Uh, there's been a lot of, I'm looking at one right now. That's why I keep, uh, <laughs> This guitar kind of has an interesting story if you want, if I want me to. Yeah. We'll talk guitars. Come on. Yeah. Okay, sweet, so. sweet fucking paint job, by the way. You guys can't see it, but it's kind of like a black and red blood splattery looking. Yeah. What was really interesting about this guitar, my, uh, I had a friend of mine and he started working at Fender and Fender has bought out Jackson. Right. Um, it, so that's the story over there, and it's all in the Corona factory or whatever. But my friend just started <laughs> this guy I've known for years. He recently had got hooked up with working over there, and he was like working in the warehouse, you know, kind of just entry level position or whatever. And he's like, "Oh yeah, man, I'll let you know if I come across anything cool. Maybe I can hook you up with it or something. Maybe you know." And I'm like, "Okay, fucking, we'll see, whatever." And um, a few months go by and then whatever. And then one day he shoots me a picture of him holding this guitar. And uh, I don't know if you can see like the uh, the inlays on it are diamond They're shaped. They're diamonds, mother, yeah. Diamond mother of pearl inlays that are abalone. And it has a Kaler bar on it already. I'm a Kaler guy. Yeah. And, and Jackson doesn't do these bars very often. So... To me, to see a guitar that has a Kaler on it, and it, I'm a EM, I've been using these EMG 81 pickups for so long, it's just what I'm used to. Yeah. Um, I haven't really tried a whole lot of other pickups. I've been using these for so long. So it's like it already had the Kaler and it's got the EMGs in it. And uh, I've never seen a Jackson with these diamonds and the abalone. And I love the reverse headstocks too. Hell yeah. And, and it was a custom shop piece, which I don't have any custom shop technically custom shop things you know my other jacksons that i've had i kind of think they're all made in the same small factory so i don't really know honestly sure. what a custom shop piece was technically but uh, so anyway my buddy shows me his guitar and he's like hey man do you want to see if do you, do you like it do you want it and i was like yeah i want it um how much and uh unfortunately at that point I lost contact with him and I never heard back from him about the guitar and he kind of just fell off the map, yeah. so to speak. So I'm not, I'm not really sure what happened there, but I never heard back and I was kind of just like, Oh, well, you know, whatever. And, um, I look at eBay all the time and one day here's the, all of a sudden I look and there's the fucking guitar on eBay. <laughs> and, and the guy, and they had it priced for $6,000. Fuck, dude. And I was just like, what? What the fuck? And it, so I was like, saw it at $6,000. And I was just like, fuck. Like, fuck you, really? And um, so I waited. 
and I waited and I watched the price go down and down and down and down and down and down. And it um, ended up being at a reasonable price. And uh, I shot the, I gave him a bid and he took my bid. And so he sent me the guitar and um, he advertised it as a, as a brand new Jackson. Yeah. Right. Well, the fucking guitar was eight years old. <laughs> the setup tags were from eight years ago. And this guitar was sitting in the box at the factory. The strings were like rusted on it because oh. it was just sitting there. And the fingerboard was like all, it was so dry. It had been sitting in the corner, I'm guessing. For like eight years, it was like somebody's custom order that they never picked up. Is like a new old stock? Well, that's what I figured it would it to be. Because when I saw the setup tags at like eight years ago, I hit the guy up again. I'm like, this ain't brand new. This is fucking, eight, this is a new old stock piece. It ain't, it ain't fucking brand new. So you got to give me some more money back. And uh, I grabbed another 500 bucks off him. Oh, well, so hey. I was... I was I was really happy about that at that point because that really put it into a reasonable price point. Sure, you know. So this has been my main piece that I've been, um, you know, doing the shows with lately, and people seem to like it and it plays great. Yeah. So that's kind of so, what you're basing more or less your your custom build that you're going to get. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm a little bit on the fence if I'm going to do a 24 fret or a 22 fret. Because like my other King V's, my uh, my three other, I'm looking at my three other V's, and they're all 22 fret pieces. And um, at least with the Jacksons, when they have 24 frets, the neck sits deeper into the body. Yeah. Just a little bit, and it squishes the pickups together more. And um, like you can see, like on my other King V, I'll grab my other V right here. So you can see, um, better not drop it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you got a backup if you do. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, so this is, this is like my, one of my first, um, King V's. And this is like the 22 fret, I believe. And you can see it's just, it's, uh. Yeah, that's the traditional, the traditional King V with the shark inlays and uh, yes. another yeah, ironic that's... shark reference there, by the way. Um, I know, right? And uh, the, yeah. the cool classic jet black. Yeah, this was actually, um, this was my third King V that I got. My, my very first King V that I got, uh, it got stolen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... It got stolen. I actually custom ordered it, and um, it was it's kind of funny that when I had uh, I was playing my Dean Explorer before that, and I kind of wanted to get a new guitar, and I didn't really know what to get. And I remember I walked into this guitar center in Lawndale, and they had a they had a King V up on the wall, and um, it had a, like a Haley's Comet on it. I just remember seeing the guitar and I was like, fuck, it was so rad. And I was like, it was the raddest thing I'd ever seen, you know? And you know, this Robin Crosby designed this. Yeah, thing. from Rat. Yeah. Yes. But his guitar, I guess, was bigger. So anyway, that was kind of the story on that guitar. 
And um, so I saw this guitar and I thought it was so fucking amazing. And I was just, and I remember, I think it was only like, it was like 1400 bucks or something to order a brand new one at yeah. that time. And uh, cause this was like probably 87, 88, maybe. It was uh, before the Leave Scars record. That was 89. And Darkness was out like 87. So it was like right about that time. And um, so anyway, I I, uh, I custom ordered this piece and it took like a year to come in. And um, I was just, I was so stoked about it because nobody, at the time, nobody was playing that. And um, we had done some shows with Megadeth <laughs> at the time. And well, of uh, course, Dave, Dave plays the V's. <laughs> Well, this was before he had the fucking V, man. He was playing those BC rich bitches, and we played this show with him at Fender's, and my guitar was still on order. And yeah, he had his fucking King V with this fucking uh, Megadeth logo on it. So I was very bummed about that because um, nobody had one at the time. And um, so that's kind of the way that went. And I had that V um played a lot a few shows with it um i think i did the ultimate revenge video with it um that video in new york in philly that we shot and and i like i custom ordered it so this was like the standard control layout and um just to make it different i said well why don't you put in like the control layout from a randy rhodes which had two volumes of its own yeah just i don't know i don't fucking i just wanted to make it different than the standard thing Put on those yeah. extra knobs that I'll never use. Yeah, pretty much. And um, it had my name on the back of the headstock. It said E.E. Meyer in like old English lettering. And um, so anyway, I had that V and I played it for a while. And uh, then when we were, uh, I got uh, endorsed with Gibson guitars. And that was kind of funny how that happened because um, – we had a road manager named Tony DiLeonardo and uh, he did a bunch of our road stuff. And then Tony got the gig teching for Zach Wild. So that was before he started working with Zach Wild, like for a year before. This would have been right around the time that he joined on around like the no rest for the wicked era. Probably. Well, it was it was right when he first got started working with him, and yeah. he was just like doing rehearsals and shit. And he was doing this stuff. My my buddy Tony was like working with him out in the valley, like every day in a warehouse for like I swear it was like a year. And this was like '89 or something, because that we did leave scars came out in '89 or something. And uh, the thing was, so Zach was the Gibson guy. And now Tony had the Gibson hookup. So he said, well, Eric, if you want to get hooked up with Gibson, I got the reference. You could go and you're doing a new record. So, you know, they'll, I'm sure they'll throw you a thing. So I got endorsed with Gibson through Zach Wilde. So that was really <laughs> fucking cool. That's fucking think, cool. Yeah. You know? And um, the thing about it was, it's like, I was really happy with my Jackson King V. And I thought, well, what what am I going to get, you know? And it was a B deal. It was a cost deal, sure. right? So I figured, okay, I got to get something just to, like, get my name in with them. And uh, so they had, like, a black explorer that I, they put Taylor bars in it. They had, like, this really kind of 
um, a low edition Kaler in there, like a Kaler flyer. And, uh, but whatever, it had a Kaler bar standard in it and it was black. And so I ordered this, you know, this black Gibson Explorer and I put metal knobs on it and shit. And, uh, I upgraded the Kaler on it to a better Kaler and that made a huge difference in it, but whatever. Um, we were rehearsing for a gig at Fender's and I had both of my guitars with me to try it out in the lot in the rehearsal situation, like having both guitars. And one of my friend's bands was playing after us and I went to go hang out with them and I put my guitars in my car <laughs> and um, I came out and the fucking door was open and the guitars were gone. Jacked. Yes. So balls, there, brother. there went my custom King V and my black Explorer never to be seen again. And um, I, well, at a pawn know, shop somewhere, it was seen again. I guess, you know, it was kind of strange that I never saw him again. And it's a unique King V um, that whoever would find it. Um, I wonder if know. whoever took it knew that they were yours. Like if they were familiar with you, if they even had any idea of what it was that they got. You know, I kind of doubt it. It was probably just a coincidence. Some random was, crackhead. Yeah, it's just really fucking stupid that I did that. But I just didn't really think about it, you know. I mean, that car was locked, but I mean, it was a mini truck and it was, they were in the passenger seat. Both guitars were yeah. just like sitting right there in the cases. So, you know, what was funny, man. Well, not funny, but this, the guitars got stolen right before we were doing rehearsals for the Leave Scars record to come out. And this was a, a headline gig we were doing at Fender's. So this was like the last rehearsal before the gig. So this was like four days or so before the fucking show. And now I don't have any guitars. <laughs> and um, I, I swear, you know, I was crying when I fucking the guitars were gone. I was just, it's like you go from having your rig perfect. Oh, yeah. To having, to having no rig. <laughs> and um, I, I was so fucking crushed. And what blew me away is how many people called me up and said, Eric, you could use my guitar, man. You could use my guitar, bro. You want to use my guitar? It's like the outpouring that I got to help me out just fucking blew me away. Yeah, that's amazing. And what, and what was weird was Gene has an older sister, and she knew a guy named Romero Morales, I think if I remember right, and he actually worked at Jackson. And so Gene tells Lisa... Lisa tells Romero, and it's like, Eric got his fucking guitar stolen, man. And Romero works at Jackson. Well, fucking Romero is going to bring you a guitar, Eric. And I was like, what? I, what? I didn't even like, I don't even know this guy. He came down to sound check, and he brought me a King V with a reverse headstock and a Kaler on it, a white one, pearl white. And he, and he was like, here, man, check it out, and you can play it if you want and i was like what are you fucking kidding me man? and it was kind of weird guitar because it had it actually had a really beefy neck on it which was uh really unusual for jackson's probably based but on an old gibson profile or something something strange man it had a fat neck on it yeah but um, it was a beautiful guitar and the guy said well if you want to play it great and then if you want to buy it great and i was like what so i ended up buying this guitar and I played it on tour a few times, and it was a, a pearl white King V, and I ended up um, 
getting it refinished and I had to sand the neck down. And um, so I played that guitar on a few tours, like when I uh, looking at it up there. But and then I also then I told Romero, hey, I want to get uh, a spare. So give me another King V. And that was this one that I was showing you here. So that's its story. And it had a red uh, red logo on it, which was different. Yeah. And I since uh, blacked out the binding on it, which might have been kind of a mistake, but uh, <laughs> whatever. I did it anyway. So, And this one doesn't really get much use anymore anyway because I've just been using my uh, the, uh, the blood splatter and then my other V, which um, is actually a washburn. Oh. That that I customized the shit out of here, I could show you. And it was a prototype piece, and they only made like six of them. And um, so anyway, this was this Washburn guitar, and I totally modded this thing out myself. And I've seen the pictures of this before. This has got the, the diamond plate. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's a cover or just a graphic on there. This this is real diamond plate metal. Yeah, that's legit. That I, that, I, that I put on there. It actually used to have a different kind of diamond plate pick guard that was parallel, that was black, and the guitar was finished. It was like a matte black finish, and it you could actually see the wood grain in the whole guitar, which I wasn't really too keen on. You like you've seen like some Gibsons they try they've done some of that where you can see the grain. Yeah. And I wasn't really too keen on that factor of it. It had the input jack was down here, old Gibson style, yeah. which honestly I hated. <laughs> um, so that was there. It it had a stop tail piece. Um, and it had the uh, the headstock was really big and it kind of looked like Gumby. <laughs> and I, I hated that headstock also. So... One day I just kind of thought, fuck it, man. This guitar isn't really going to be worth anything. It's just going to be my piece, you know? Yeah, so you Frankensteined it. I did. I recut the headstock. I made the headstock pointy and I kind of added a little flair to it. And it's, so it's a lot smaller. But that was like my first mod that I did to it. And then um, I decided I was going to refinish it. So I did got grain filler and I filled it and I experimented with a few different kinds of finishes and I got a Kaler. And so I thought, fuck it, I'm going to route it out and put a Kaler in it. And so I did that. And, um, my friend had brought over some diamond plate. And, um, so I made the pit guards myself and, um, and then I wasn't happy with the uh, input jack down here. So I thought I'm going to put the input jack, up here Jackson style. Yeah. And so I had done that. I had it all rounded out. And then I had seen a V before that had the input jack in the back over here. And I thought, well, fuck it. Since I'm just right. I just thought, fuck it. I changed my mind and I decided I'm going to go for putting it in the back over here. So I did that. So basically it has the look of when the jack is in it, when the, you got your wireless, you can't even see that there's a cord. Yeah. That's awesome. That's the vibe that I wanted for this. And um, so that's what I did. I put the jack back there. And then I thought, well, fuck it. While I'm carving the thing up, I might as well put a, a battery panel back here. So I did that. And then when I was refinishing and going for a million different kinds of refinishes, I sanded it down. And when I sanded it down, it came out looking like it does like this kind of calico thing. Cause there was a million, there was like four different 
coats of paint on there. And it <laughs> kind of came out looking with this calico look. Yeah, it's awesome. It has. And so I just I decided decided to fucking leave that on there. And then I had a that 13th Street guitar put Luma dots in the side. So it's got the Luma dot inlays, which are very fun, by the way. Yeah, they're the glow in the dark ones. So if you're on a dark stage, you can uh, yes. you can still fucking yep. see where so you're at. You light them up and they'll charge up. So yeah. they're very fun. Yeah. And that's the story with that guitar. And because I put so much work into it, it's really like my favorite guitar. Yeah. Uh, I think. And it, and it plays real nice. It kind of has like a V shape back of the neck, which is kind of unusual. But my original Dean has that too. So I like it. And uh, yeah, so that's my yeah guitar story. Yeah. Well, now that we've uh, got a, a pretty epic background on, on kind of what you're playing and where you're going there, how old do you feel when when, uh, when you're reminded that we have arrived arrived 35 plus fucking years ago? How old do I feel? Jeez, <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's a weird way to put it. You're you know, fucking old. <laughs> uh, I know. You're in, you're in this you're in the spot you're like in your 40s or something oh, right you got dude. a little bit of gray going yeah on, right? I'm I'm so. creeping up I'm I'm 45 so you know I'm a yeah to think about that record coming out so long ago I mean I could remember doing it of course and being there you know the few memories and stuff from that record and and um, you know memories from recording all the records and the tours and different things like that they're all different you know milestone chapters in your life you know that you uh end up going through and i guess it, as you get older you know you get a lot more chapters you know different phases and i guess that's probably the best way to explain it or something you know that was our first record and first time in a in a for my first time like in a big you know real studio you know studio down in hollywood you know track records and working with bill matoyer who's a guy who did you know, did lots of band, all the metal blade bands and everything. And, you know, yes, yeah, so it was really, it was a cool experience. Yeah. Nerve wracking, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, so the, the band had gotten started, you know, I don't know, 80, 81, somewhere in there. You kind of joined early on, but not quite at the, at the outset. And so let's get a little bit of a history about, you know, kind of how you hooked up with Dark Angel and uh, from, we'll go from there. Okay. Well, they had been, together like you said at that time i think they called themselves shell shell shock, shell shock yeah I, I think if i remember that right and they had done a few demos and stuff like that and uh i think they kind of may have revolved the door with another guitar player and with drummers i think they kind of revolved the door but it was a bit of the the core members of jim durkin and don Doty and rob yawn those guys were the buddies and um Rob Yon on bass, Don Doty on vocals, Jim Durkin on guitar. And um, like I said, I know they'd done some demos and stuff, and uh, I think they were, were they had played shows around. I wasn't familiar with them, but um, I felt like that I had kind of maxed out my playing with my local guys in town, like in Huntington Beach, you know, doing my phase of uh, – playing with this band and that, you know, I kind of went through a punk rock phase when I was younger and it felt like a real, uh, like a beneficial thing for me anyway, because the music was fairly simple, you know, and it was easy to master or whatever. And, uh, the, that punk phase, I was all about 
aggressive and fast music and that was where that was and punk rock scene was really blowing up around in my uh, los angeles area like 1980 it was a fucking hot thing you know sure. and um it was kind of funny like in that my dad would get the la times all the time the la times newspaper People don't know about newspapers anymore, but yeah, you get this <laughs> newspaper, and it, in the LA Times newspaper, it would have the calendar section was the entertainment section, and you could go and you and that's where you'd find all the gigs and everything that was going on, and you know you there would be, and on the Sundays it would have like a magazine, the calendar magazine, with and it would have all this music shit in it, and you'd see all the fucking club ads were in there and there were like articles on punk rock and this band and this and that thing. And because like I said, it was kind of a hot thing at the time, but, um, how I met up with the dark angel guys, I advertised myself in the recycler. And that was like this, uh, dollar, uh, newspaper classified thing. That was, that was kind of the hot thing to, uh, finding other local musicians and also for buying gear. You know, it was kind of made famous by Metallica, of course, because they get they connected through the recycler as well. But it was kind of the just the go to thing. You know, you go in the liquor store, it comes out on Thursday and whatever. I, I think it might have even been free to place your classified app. So that was just really the go to thing for connecting with other people and for buying gear. And um, I advertised myself, guitar player seeking band. And it was like I was influenced by venom merciful fate and metallica so i kind of thought i'd put a little bit of a broad you know from ultra raunchy to uh, a little bit more diverse with merciful fate and then metallica was obviously metallica and they were i mean metallica was on the first record at that point you know so they weren't like a big huge thing and venom was probably on maybe they had their second record out at that point maybe I don't really remember. You'd have to check the history books for when black metal came out. But, um, but, um, so that was what I advertised and I had a few different people call me up but nothing really panned out. And then Jim Durkin called me one day and he's like, yeah, man, we got this band dark angel and we need a guitar player and everything's cool and blah, blah, blah. And, and we got along so good. It was, it, it was really just like this, instantaneous kindred spirits kind of thing and it was just so nice you know and th those guys were from like the uh jimmy lived in southgate you know so it was about 30 miles away it's kind of they were like la county you know and i was in orange county huntington beach you know so it's definitely kind of in a way different worlds yeah so to speak you know? and, and don don was from like downey and i think maybe rob was in bellflower or something but it was so it was la county right and, um, you know, I was just talking with Jimmy, you know, and like I had a 50 watt Marshall at the time and I was playing my Dean Explorer. That was my axe. And, uh, you know, like Jimmy asked what kind of guitar I said, I got a Dean. And he's like, dude, I got a Dean too. Man. So he like had a white V. And, um, so anyway, we just really got along good. And Jimmy's just the nicest guy. And, uh, He's like, yeah, you know, man, Dark Angel, blah, blah, blah. We've done demos and everything's really cool. We need a guitar player. We're going to try out this drummer on Saturday. Why don't you come down? And I was like, well, fuck. I wanted to, like, try to learn something or what. He's like, just come on down, man. We'll go jam with this guy. And I was, like, just kind of nervous about it because I hadn't, like, heard anything, I don't think, at that point. And 
we went and like jammed with this drummer and uh, like the drummer just didn't really work out. But um, just meeting those guys, I mean, we all were like the same age and we all just got along great. And, and um, but that drummer didn't work out. And then I don't remember exactly how it went from there. Honestly, I don't quite remember. But um, then I guess they got another drummer and then they were going to rehearse at the singer's house in a bedroom in there. And um, so I would, I went over there a few times at that point and they had this drummer and I don't remember the guy's name, but uh, he like had this blonde curly hair. He kind of looked like Robert Plant or something. And he, he played like, he had this really light touch, like just, just <laughs> I mean, and it just, I mean, I don't know. So that was going to be the drummer and here's this guy. You were feeling that. I wasn't feeling it at all. Yeah. And I mean, I, I didn't feel like I was, who the fuck was I to be picking and choosing who to be playing with, you know? But it's like I played with a few different drummers and played with a few good, you know, whatever, good drummers. That's the thing about punk bands. Punk bands tend to always have good drummers. That's the thing for punk rock. So, but whatever, I played with some guys who were pretty good, but whatever. I just didn't really feel that this was going to work with this guy. And, um, and honestly, I jammed with them a few times at Don's house, and uh, they were kind of flaky. Also, the guys they were like showing up late, and then they wouldn't. And it was kind of far for me to go, you know, because I had to drive from Huntington Beach way, fucking drive, whatever. And and so um, I just kind of flaked on them, and they just like you know whatever. We we kind of drifted apart, and. Um, I had one of their VHS videos from one of their gigs that was Don's, like they played at the Troubadour or something. So I had this video that they lent me, and um, I had left a guitar stand over there. Like inadvertently, we each had some of their other guys' stuff. And um, so it, it was kind of a reason almost to keep in touch because Don wanted to get his video back, and I wanted to get my guitar stand back, but it wasn't really a big deal. But it's like, yeah, you know, whatever. And, um, so anyway, it was like a few months later that uh, they like got back in touch with me and said, hey, man, you know, we're still looking for a guitar player, you know, and and uh, we've got a new drummer and we've got this rehearsal spot that's a lockout and uh, we're going to put out a record if you're still interested in jamming with this. And I was like, wow, it's like they had gotten all they the got their shit together. together. They did get their shit together, and they had this drummer named Jack Schwartz, and uh, guy played. He was like from the Valley or something, but the guy played good. And like I said, they had a lockout rehearsal studio, which was obviously fucking huge. And uh, the most important thing they had, they had what what's called a P and D deal record, which was a pressing and distribution deal. Pay for all your own stuff, and they put it out. Yes. And it was through uh, Azra Records in the States. And then there was a European distributor called Axe Killer. And uh, these they had put out some records. Like, I think Azra worked with Overkill and stuff, like, at the time. I mean, fuck, it's like 85, 86 or something. So, um, 
So that was the deal that was all in place. And uh, the situation was like Don took out a loan with his mom and that was going to pay for the, the studio time. And like to join the band, you're agreeing to put in 60 bucks a month or whatever it was. Sure, to pay make back some kind loan. of contribution. Hey, pay back this loan that his mom took out for the thing. And that was kind of the agreement going into the band. And, and you got to pay for the rehearsal monthly thing. And so it's like, you get this, so whatever. So yeah, of course I'd do it. And, and that was how it started, you know? And, um, we, uh, the record, it was kind of funny. We went over budget on our recording. And so when you go over budget on your recording, they don't let your tape out, right? So you're kind of your tape is kind of in hock, I guess. Yeah, you're uh, they're holding it hostage until you fucking pay off. <laughs> until you pay off, you're not getting your fucking masters. Yeah. So the tape sat there in the studio for several months, oh. and um, so in the timeline of releasing records at that point, it was kind of a big fucking deal. And also the thing that was was a trip also we had you know the metal massacres the bright the brian slade the metal blade metal massacres we had a slot on the metal massacre six yeah the compilations yeah so one of our songs was going to be on that uh thing and so welcome to the slaughterhouse was going to be the single that we were putting out on there so this was all going to come out at the same time and those metal massacres you know i mean thanks to metallica they were kind of a a nice, it was definitely a nice springboard that everybody saw that shit and everybody saw the metal maskers. And it was this great springboard for local bands to be on the fucking metal masker records. And we were going to have one of our songs on there. So that was all going down at the same time, but we had our, uh, our, our thing sat in hostage, so to speak, <laughs> because we didn't have the money for it. And, um, the European record label actually andied up the money to get it out. And uh, so they bailed it out for us. And um, what was kind of funny, we, uh, I can't remember how it exactly it went down, but we were going to do this record, the rec, we have arrived record cover with the graveyard thing, yeah. the fancy uh, artwork. I don't think we had gotten that received it yet from the artist and yes and um this guy named scene rogers who i'm good friends with now which is so ironic <laughs> but um it's so fucking amazing i mean but um i don't think that artwork was in yet and we were like waiting for this artwork and so axe killer they were like well we're not gonna fucking wait for this artwork and they released the record as it as it showed up, like if you've ever seen it, it had like yellow and red and it honestly looked pretty lame. It was just a logo and it said, we have arrived across the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. That and one it, ended up being like on an import, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The import, you know, the European version came out before the domestic. So you could buy the dark angel record on an import before it was available domestically. And this was, it was probably like that for a fucking good six months or something, if I remember right. And um, so, but, you know, the European press was kind of more of a hotter, the European metal magazines were kind of more on it anyway, yeah. like the 
the Kerangs and the metal forces and that kind of shit. So they got that, you know, so it's like the band was out in Europe before it was out in the States, basically. And then it ended, but I mean, that was kind of the, the hot place to be anyway, so to speak, because metal was, you know, and it still kind of is. I mean, it's, it's, it was hotter over there. So that's kind of the way that went down. And, um, you know, we ended up, we did a few shows, but then pretty much instantaneously as of doing that record, we decided that things weren't working. It wasn't working out with that drummer, Jack. Yeah. And, um, Jim had met a drummer named Lee Roush and Lee Roush had played with Megadeth. And, um, that was like all I knew of him was Lee played with Megadeth and he has his bitchin' kit. <laughs> so we're going to get Lee in the band. And I was like, well, fuck, okay. And um, he was like a cool cat, but we he brought his shit into our lockout. And um, I swear we never even got the set down all the way with this guy. And I can't really remember why, but um, it just we never even played a show with him. Like he just didn't learn the songs? Well, we were struggling, man. I don't know. You, I, I really don't remember what exactly the deal was, but, you know, like all I heard was uh, Lee used to play with Megadeth. Well, you know, I, I don't know how he was doing that, but with us, you know, I mean, no disrespect to him, sure. but I, I don't really remember why the fuck it didn't work out. He was like working construction and his arms were tired and this and that. <laughs> and I was like, well, whatever, man. So he, and that enters in Gene Hoagland into our picture. And Gene Hoagland was like friends of the band. I didn't really know him all that well, but he was like friends of other people. Gene was like this guy in the scene, supposed, you know, not supposedly he was. I mean, he had worked with Slayer doing like lights with Slayer. And, and it was funny because he's like 16 years old and the guy's like 6'2". And he's a big motherfucker. He, even back then, he was a big motherfucker. Yeah. And like he has wears these prescription glasses, you know, that were, you can't see his eyes and he had this huge hair, you know? And so Gene was just like this imposing guy from at 17 years old. He was an imposing guy. And um, I had just heard, well, fucking Gene plays drums, man. And, and Jimmy was kind of just like, Oh, we're going to get fucking dude. Gene's going to, we're going to get Gene in the band, man. This guy's fucking rad drummer. And I was just like, okay. And, and it just worked out from from there so gene was in the band after that first record he didn't play on it and then um that was kind of the way it worked and then we basically really took off in a whole nother direction at that point with gene behind our drums because i mean he was i mean even back then his his style i mean he just fucking played like a a maniac really he like if, if you see like if you're familiar with drummers, I mean, I, like typically a guy crosses over with his hi-hat with his right hand and Gene played like this with his hi-hat over here and he's playing like this so he didn't cross over. And plus, since he's a big guy and uh, I mean, I know some drummers play that way, but I had never even seen that before. Like he would have his hi-hats here and his ride cymbal right next to it on the left, which would seem so strange to me. So he wouldn't cross over. So... And I'd heard that he's actually like a, he's ambidextrous, you know, I mean, he's Stevie DiGiorgio says, oh, he's a southpaw. That's why he plays like that. But 
I'd never seen anything like it. And God just played like a fucking monster. And so now we had this guy in our band that was like played like a fucking monster. So it was it was a very nice upgrade from, <laughs> from everything. You know, I mean Jack played pretty good, but I mean he wasn't he wasn't a guy like that. And you know, and Gene is like a lyricist and Yeah, and he plays, plays guitar. guitar, yeah. I mean Guy's immensely talented, and um, I always knew he was immensely talented, and it was, I mean, it's just awesome to see his, the way his star has rode, you know, his star has soared. The guy has done so much shit, man. He's, yeah. he's done more shit that we haven't even heard about, <laughs> in addition to all the shit that he, we have heard about. So, yeah. yeah, he's an amazing player. So. Well, you get Gene in the band, you know, you get that first album out of the way, you record, uh, you know, Darkness Descends, which clearly becomes the f- fan favorite over the years. I mean, people still look back to that album, and, and that's the one that I think that people go back to the most as an identifier of kind of really what solidified the sound of, of Dark Angel. For sure. Getting Gene in the band, I mean, it was really like this, Gene kind of had this conscious, uh, it was a conscious push to make us way fucking faster yeah you know and so we just you know playing him and we playing with him and we started doing those new songs you know the parish of flames of burning sodom and the darkness descends and those songs and i mean the guy just played these songs so fucking fast it was just like <laughs> wow we're we're in a different level of fast music here and he was, was like keep up motherfuckers Oh, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, and it was difficult basically. Cause I mean, he would just play so fucking fast. It was like, it was, it was crazy. And especially like live wise, you know, everybody gets adrenalized and shit. And, and, um, and also, I mean, he was really kind of responsible for kind of honing Don Doty's vocal style on the darkness record, because, you know, like on the first record, he sang kind of, yeah, kind of windy. I mean, it was like, <laughs> kind of like a transition of like per se the way James Hetfield progressed from sure. his first record to doing his next thing, and so you know, Gene was kind of. I mean, he'd probably go on record saying, you know, I want to make sure Don didn't sound like a fucking wuss, you know. So I was gonna like fucking make sure he didn't sing like a sing like a fucking wuss. So I mean, that record really came out the way it came out, which was pretty fucking awesome and uh at at that point also our bass player rob yawn um who was a really awesome bass player he played finger style with his fingers he had a really great finger technique with his right hand uh when me when me when we met with the producer randy burns who was this guy who was like you know the hot guy coming off of uh combat he had done a few bands. He had just worked with Megadeth doing the Peace Cells record immediately before working with us. And um, we meet with this guy and he's like, oh, well, you're not going to play with your fingers. You're going to use a pick, dude, for the bass player. And Rob was just like, what? And <laughs> it's like, Fuck. it like totally burst his bubble playing wise because he's like a finger style guy and that's the way he plays. And, and Randy Burns is just like, no dude, you're going to use a pick. It sounds way more attacky and it's more, um, more consistent and, uh, totally burst Rob's bubble. So he played the record like that. 
And and then in actuality, he had decided he didn't want to be in the band anymore. And he said, well, I'll stick around until you guys find another bass player. And then that enters in Mike Gonzalez, um, who, you know, put his picture on the record, but he actually didn't play on it. And it says it in the fine print on the Darkness record that Mike, you know, bass was played by Rob Yon. And uh, so that was the way that that went. And then, uh, you know, so that record was done in like 10 sessions. So yeah, that's crazy. It, by today's standards, fucking it. It may as well have been overnight by today's standards. Uh, pretty much. It was it was a trip. Do it. <laughs> I mean, drum drums were done on those kind of things. You do drums in two days. Yeah, was the way it works. And uh, that was like our introduction on the on the drumming for like, you know, anybody's interested in this kind of shit. Um, like there was a there was a guy called the drum doctor. And uh, this guy was like this dude in the valley. And like when you're going to go and record a record, um, this guy, you tell him what kind of what your set configuration is. And this guy will bring down a studio tweaked drum set and whatever kind of symbols. And he will bring down this drum set that you rent. Right. For he'll bring it down and he'll set it up and he'll be there for the miking and he'll set this kid up for you and your drums will sound tits. <laughs> and, that's, and that was the way that was the way like Megadeth did their record with this with the drum doctor guy and we did ours that was just the way you were going to do it because that way you're not fucking around with a crappy kit because drums are a whole science unto themselves at that point so to have a beautiful drum sound is half the battle for a metal thing and um, we had recorded the, those whole thing with Randy Burns producer dude was like we're going to record our drums at Music Grinder Studios up in Hollywood. And we recorded the drums in a warehouse in the back. So it was actually like a big warehouse. So you actually had like a natural warehouse echo sound that was real. And um, so that's the way we did the drums. That's what Randy said we were going to do. Uh, so you did the drums in two days. And then everything else, your overdubs, we did them in a smaller studio. Uh, this place called Mad Dog Studio in Venice. And this is all done during the tape era, by the way. So, yes. I mean, to get that yes. done in 10 days this, on fucking tape, exactly. um, that's just even crazier. Yes, there are there are no edits. It is one take with the drums, oh. and there can be no fuck-ups. No fuck-ups <laughs> whatsoever. So, yeah, to keep that in mind, those were the old days, and that was how that shit was done. And obviously, you really had to... Uh, Make sure guys don't get weird things in their head. I mean, you fucking have your one day for your drummer. And, you know, you got to lay down fucking half your record on that first day. And, I mean, Gene was a fucking guy. He didn't have any problems doing it. But, of course, people have train wrecks when they're doing that shit, man. And you can get blocks and uh, blocks in your mind fucks. And, I mean, you get tired and. And you tried to do these extreme double bass things that people were doing at that time. I mean, fuck. You know, you, probably lots of people have heard stories about Metallica and Lars having problems doing that shit. And I mean, Metallica was doing that shit. Like the, you know, one, I mean, that was done on, in the analog tape days. Yep. You know? And that was, uh, it had to be recorded live perfectly. And there was no chopping stuff up at the time. So, that's the way things used to be, but yes, yeah, that's, that's the way we did all the Archangel records were basically done in that fashion. 
And on the tape, 24-track tape. Yeah, dude. So amazing. All right. We're at about the halfway point, and it's time for us to take a little break. So we're going to call this part one. Make sure you come back for part two, the epic conclusion of my conversation with Eric Meyer, and hear about the progression of the band and what's going on with the new material. But don't forget, it's a second episode, so you'll need to download or stream it separately. Now hit the head, grab yourself a drink, and check out this song from the 1986 album Darkness Descends. This one's called Hunger of the Undead.